Good morning. I had the privilege, as I do from time to time, to go and visit with Dennis Kenlaw, one of the great stalwarts of our movement, and I, 93 years old, I said to him recently, um, what is the best thing you've ever read on theology of human sexuality in the body? He said, John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I thought that was really, really wonderful. Because we are in this, this is part two of this series where we're examining some of the insights of John Paul II and his amazing work on the theology of the body, which I also believe has been uh, one of the great contributions to this area. Part of the purpose of these homilies uh, this semester is for us to uh, kind of move to a different plane. I think we have to, uh, as I said last week, get beyond either saying we are against something, you know, our big, our, we're known to be against something, uh, some like homosexual practice, or even to say we've now come up with five clever arguments against this or that practice. Our problem is much more profound than that, and I really want us to move into a much larger frame and recover a biblical vision. What are we joyfully for? Don't you think we need to hear that? And what the church needs today is that word. We have to recognize, and, and this is a problem with Protestant theology in general, we tend to atomize everything into little tiny little issues that we develop responses to, rather than sitting back and seeing the larger picture, which is the foundation of which all these things can be addressed. Our society is full of a whole spectrum of brokenness, ranging from divorce to digital pornography to homosexual practice, adultery, fornication, gender reassignment, and even issues like the right to die issue and abortion, all of it actually is a part of this larger theme about the theology of the body. Does the church have a theology of the body? And it took me actually years to realize that all of this discussion in the current day is not about sex. It's about the body. And the sooner we learn that and realize that, the better. So it's really up to your generation to regain your theological composure. My generation inflicted all of this chaos upon you to <laughs> you to sort it all out. I honestly do believe that it will be your generation that finally sets this whole thing right again. But it's going to take us 20 years to do it, and we have to get right on that and get, get on with it. We cannot Twitter our way out of this. This involves some good, serious theological work. You have to have a spade in your hand. This is not a 45-letter you know, type deal. Now, last time we saw in the opening chapter of Genesis, our creation is male and female. They were not merely biological categories. They're not less than that. But they're, they're actually spiritual capacities, spiritual categories which are given to us as God's gift and design. And we saw quite amazingly, because today we can all, almost lose hope in these things, how in Matthew 19, Jesus, without blinking, uh, seems to acknowledge openly that the original design, despite the fall, despite the hardness of human heart, in this case Moses, and at least the interpretation of Moses on certain points, and then the, uh, you know, the, the gravity of sin, rise of sin, and all the cultural fog, despite all of that, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 19 that the original plan is joyfully intact. That's very encouraging. He says to them, and in fact, he says it twice in that text, from the beginning it was not so. He calls us to go back to pre-fallen Adam. So we realized last week that part of the 
struggle was actually happened decades ago when we actually gave up a biblical vision for marriage to begin with. We actually accepted, largely, the world's or cultural definition of marriage as a shifting cultural arrangement designed to deliver happiness, you know, companionship, sexual fulfillment, and economic efficiency, a few tax breaks. In contrast, Scripture summons us to a very different world where families are intended to reflect the Trinity, the sacramental nature of the body, which we explored last week, what it means to be image bearers in our physicality. We, we've kind of accepted the idea that image bearing is something down inside of us, something like spirit in us, and it is that, but it's, it's actually everything we are is meant to be image bearers of God. The, the means of grace all happen through the body. The power of self-donation. All this is lost. The mystery of what it means to be a co-creator with God in the reproducibility of children. All that's lost. The, even, for that matter, preparing the world to receive the incarnation is part of our role as bearers of the human body. So all of that, there's this mighty chasm between these two visions, uh, then, and we have got to recapture the biblical vision. The former is a utilitarian vision, which sees marriage as a commodity. The latter is a biblical vision, which sees marriage as a covenant. Now, to put it kind of bluntly, I hate to be so blunt, but I think at times we have to be blunt. The utilitarian vision really sees the body of a man or woman like assessing buying a car. You look at a car and say, is it bright, not new, shiny, full of power, or not? We, we do that with people. We say, is your body, and there's a thousand ways this happens, subtly, you know, overtly, and <clears throat> otherwise, in all advertisements, media, film, education, everything. Is your body fat or thin? Does it conform to certain shapes which we admire or not? Is your hair a certain kind of texture or not? Are your eyes a certain color or not? Are your teeth shiny and straight or not? And on and on it goes. In the covenantal vision, the covenantal vision says the good news is that we have bodies and those bodies are beautiful to God because they are living sacraments in the world. They are outward signs of inward and spiritual graces since all the means of grace come through the body. It's the body which makes the invisible visible. Now this morning's text uh, we opens up with this passage where Adam is put to sleep. We saw how last week, um, how Adam was given this amazing privilege of naming the animals. And this is actually, again, deeper than we thought. This is really about Adam being allowed to discover his own solitude. See, God is three persons in one being. We're one person in one being. So Adam actually discovers, in the process of naming the animals, his own solitude. None is found suitable for him, right? As the text says in Genesis 2.20. So there's this amazing capacity which God then creates in order to invite us into communion. So he does two things to us. He creates us in his image. We're still learning what that means. And he breathes into us his life. He, all this, and so while he's asleep, Adam, Eve is taken out of Adam, and Eve is created, and they're awakened in their new reality as male and female. So what you need to see is God, in creating the female, and now the male and female, he actually is creating two different 
incarnations, or maybe make a better word for it, two different enfleshments, that's what incarnation means, right? Two enfleshments or two incarnations of what it means to have a body or to be a body, okay? So we are now, all of us are embodiments or enfleshments of these two realities, male or female, and these are different ways of being a body. And the, dual, the mysterious reciprocal re- attraction between the two is what Jesus alludes to. He said the two become one flesh, two parts of humanity, two kinds of humanity being brought together into one flesh. And of course, Genesis makes this statement, which Christ reports, uh, re- repeats, uh, that they are two become one flesh. Now, the text I want us to look at, which is read today, I want to focus on two things. One is this phrase here. After this happens, we're told that they, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, this is where we need to look at what John Paul II calls our original nakedness. Yes, we're going to discuss nakedness here. Because, remember last week, we talked about how we had to rediscover the pre-fallen Adam. Because in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, etc., there's a big emphasis on the two Adams. You know, Christ is the second Adam over in the redemptive, you know, kind of thrust, overturning the fallen Adam. So whenever we hear the word Adam, we almost always think of the fallen Adam, the fallen Adam, the fallen Adam. But then here Jesus pops up in Matthew 19 and calls us to remember the pre-fallen Adam. Don't forget the, the original design. So in the same way, we have to be reminded to remember our original nakedness that is found in that text that was read for us today in Genesis 2.25. Now what happens in the text is that we see something about the nakedness there which seems so foreign to us because for us, nakedness has become a symbol of shame just the way Adam is a symbol of guilt. Now in the Western traditions, if you go and uh, look at how our theologies have developed, and it's been somewhat true globally, but particularly in the Western traditions, and say, what is the, like, the, like, what is the problem of the fall? What does the fall do to us? What, what are we trying to get redeemed from? The, the operative word in the Western is guilt. All right, so there's a whole forensic line of thought there. You know, we, have, we are transgressing God's command. Do not eat from the tree. They ate from the tree. That's a regression of a command. That's a guilt thing. It's a guilt issue. We are now guilty before God. And we all know that trajectory, and that's all true. That testimony is true. The question is whether that's all there is to the fall. Because if the trajectory is that our problem is fundamentally guilt, and therefore our problem was disobedience, it's a forensic problem, then the answer is obedience. Like the, the redemption is about bringing us to obedience. Now, there's no question that part of redemption is to bring us to obedience. But that's not the vision. The vision is, is obviously holy love, right? The vision is so much deeper than that. So the, the problem must be deeper than guilt. And we see that, in fact, it is indeed shame and fear. If you look at the text, you see that three things actually evolve on the fall, guilt, fear, and shame. We only have really theologically developed one of those. I developed this in one of my books, uh, in my Theology in the Context of World Christianity, Chapter 4. But I went, I went down to Yale Library when I was doing my sabbatical at that, there at one point, I went to the Yale Library and I took every single systematic theology textbook they had on the shelf of that library. It was a lot of them. And Presbyterians, they love to write these things, right? So there are tons of them, right? And I had, they had all from all kinds of traditions. I looked in the back of the index, and I looked at every reference to the word guilt 
And they were like these huge long listings. I looked at the word shame, nothing. Nada, nain, naha, nothing, zero. I found one theology book that had one reference to shame, and it wasn't connected to Genesis. Okay, so I realized, wow, there's theological spade work to be done here. We just simply have not recognized this problem, but we see it in our lives every we turn. Nakedness is a sign of shame. It's what broke the original communion of persons between man and woman. So in the post-fig you know, leaf world, you might say, where we've had our shame clothed, we can only think about nakedness in terms of shame because the original unity was destroyed. So sin pushes us back into our autonomous solitude, destroys the communion of persons, and then heaps shame upon ourselves and our bodies. And so sin brings this new self-consciousness. I can even say it more bluntly, maybe the self, self-orientation. That's really the heart of sin, isn't it? And Adam and Eve become aware of their nakedness, and they felt shame, and they felt fear. Listen to what happens when God confronts them after the fall. It's very interesting, the questions that God himself asks. First question he asks, where are you? That means there's no break in communion, right? There's a, there's a solitude going on. There's a separation going on. Where are you? Adam says, I was afraid. There's the fear. We hid because we were naked. And the Lord says, second question, who told you that you were naked? Now, Adam's response profoundly recognizes the emerging self-orientation of sin. Because Adam says to the Lord, Adam, by the way, Adam has just now been you know, in a one flesh relationship with Eve. They are now not two, but one. That's what Genesis declares, and Jesus repeats it in Matthew 19. Here's this one flesh relationship. He now says, he begins to sh- shift, and now you find him heaping bl- blame and guilt on Eve. He says, the woman you gave me, dot, dot, dot. All right? Now, we, we often rehearse that, that line, right? And, 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 you know, men deserve that line, pointed back to them a lot, because we do that. We shift blame and guilt. But the point is, why did they do it? Why did Adam do this? He did this because the original unity was lost. All right? He's, it, the one flesh was broken. And so he bends to shift blame and guilt and fear upon Eve. And, they, and this, of course, becomes the cycle of the whole human race, Genesis 3, 12, and first murder or in 4.8, the first murder. So what happened was that sin robs us of that self-donation, which is in order to God's own nature, whereby we receive ourselves, give ourselves to one another in a full relationship. All the ways that we shame the body, shame another person's body, all of that is a way of shaming God and the triune God and shaming one another in the image of God because this is not what God intended because we have lost the original nakedness and the plan of that. We do catch a glimmer of this in Christian marriage, where two people are married under the covenant, and they stand before one another naked and without shame and can say to their spouse, this is my body given for you. That's essentially what is intended by the, that moment in marriage when you can recapture, should recapture, the the original nakedness. That's what it's meant to be. 
Remember how Ephesians 5, 28, what Paul says, husbands have a duty to love their wives as their own bodies. He actually makes the link there in Ephesians. To shame your wife's body is to shame yourself and to shame the triune God from whom all bodies come. Now, second, within marriage, we discover what John Paul calls the spousal meaning of the body, which means we're created for marriage. Now, to even say that today sounds controversial, to say that we are created for marriage. It sounds almost like uh, it's like a horrible thing to say, because we've been so taught, we've been brought into the strains of autonomous solitude of the culture. That's the only song we hear sung. So we assume that's the song that we should sing as well. But Jesus says, Matthew 19, a man shall leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the plan. Now, of course, there are those called to celibacy and singleness, which is a, a wonderful gift. And we're going to actually develop that, particularly in chapter uh, part five of this series. But the basic design is marriage. And I think one of the ways that this is, uh, the solitude like, theme has really been brought up today in the church on this particular issue is doing Mother's Day and Father's Day. It's very, very common today. I don't know if, if you've experienced this, but I've experienced a lot of it where when you have Mother's Day and Father's Day, they won't do it, they won't celebrate it anymore. It's been really, really downplayed because the idea behind it, at least the expectation I've heard mostly is, well, if you have like the mother stand up or the father stand up at a worship service on Mother's Day and Father's Day, it's a form of, you know, it makes the person who's never been married or who doesn't have children to be shamed or feel like they're left out or whatever. This is part of the, you know, challenge. But again, this is where sin brings us to that inward gaze where we look in upon ourselves and our situation. That's part of the whole solitude which must be pushed back. Because the real deeper point, it seems to be, and and the church would have to kind of reframe this to make it more clear, but is that the real deeper point is that we, everyone in this room, has a mother and a father. Or you had one. Your very presence in the world means that you have a mother and father. You had one. And so we stand up in honor that we, we, are, we are here because of mothers and fathers. That's why we're here. Because we, we have to look that direction rather than our own direction. That's a big change in how we think about these things. The contemporary world, you obviously know this, has set the genders at war with one another and in endless cruel and destructive ways. So just remember that the trajectory of the fall is always toward autonomous solitude. The trajectory of redemption is always summing us to communion with the triune God. And you can recognize those impulses all through culture. Don't forget it. Don't be caught off guard by it. Anything that pushes us to think about ourselves, look inward, is that trajectory toward autonomous solitude. The self-orientation, you know, the gravity of that rather than the gravity of holy love. This is what his heart is meant by, the spousal meaning of the body. Now, in Genesis 4.1, by the way, this is in the post-fallen world by this point, you have the Trinity mirrored in the actual uh, event of childbirth. Uh, the text that was read said, you know, Adam knew Eve and all of that. It was just put it very politely. But basically, Adam and Eve had a sexual relationship, and she got pregnant. And she gave birth to Cain. Now, the marriage between one man and one woman in this mysterious communion where it brought one gift 
one flesh, and then a child comes forward. You see, we are actually called, by virtue of that, to participate in God's creation. God, God is the creator. We become co-creators with God when you give birth to children. All of us are the result of that gift to the world. A little life proceeding from that sacred union, which further dispels our solitude, and then also, amazingly, it further deepens our self-donation. Both these things happen in the act of childbirth. Every parent knows when you have a child, you almost instantly get a degree in self-donation. It, I mean, it just comes with a job description, right? I mean, you know, you don't say, oh, hallelujah, I'm getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to nurse the child. You, you have to do it. You do it. You do it. You do it night after night. It's part of it because it's an act, we're being actually catechized in the self-donation. God could have given children, given children to people with that are old and wise. He can't give it to when you're young and stupid. God chose young and stupid rather than old and wise because, you know, granted, when you're, when you're young, you have the strength, not the wisdom. When you're old, you have the wisdom, not the strength. But God knew if he gives it to you when you're strong, then you'll get the wisdom. Your children are God's gift to you because it teaches you self-donation. Nursing, washing out diapers, all the wake-sleep cycles. This is all God's catechesis, thanks be to God. <laughs> Eve comes out of Adam. Uh, the little Adam comes out of Eve. You know, it's this wonderful cycle. We all have belly buttons uh, to testify that we came from that point to the present day. You call them belly buttons? Whatever. Okay. <laughs> That's what I call them. <laughs> okay, the world we inhabit only knows autonomous solitude, and therefore they scorn the reproducibility of the body. So, for example, in same-sex relations, just for an example, that's not our focus in this series, but for an example of this, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriages are biologically impossible to reproduce, right? It's non-reproducible, and therefore it is at its root rejection of the Trinity. But the, the idea that that is actually a problem in the cultural context is not even considered, because in the cultural context, the goal is solitude, and children are just a big burden anyway. You're much better and happy and fulfilled and all those things we discussed earlier without children anyway. So I realize that for some of you, when I talk about the family being a trinity and father, mother, giving birth to children, this wonderful human trinity, because theologically, just as the son is eternally begotten and the spirit proceeds from the father in the Trinitarian formulation, Nicaea, in the same way, you have the father is the begetter of children in the relationship, and the children literally proceed from the, from the wife, right, from the mother. So you have this wonderful mirror of the Trinity. So you say to myself, you say to me, well, you weren't in my home. My home was broken. My home was conflicted. My home, if you could say, was my home a picture of the Trinity or a picture of hell? I think I might choose hell. Some of you have that experience. Now, I get that. But my point to you is, the, and this is the good news, the hopeful point, it doesn't matter how horrible your situation was, God always leaves signs of, of his hope in that, right? 
And I have seen so many examples of young people who have gone through very difficult family situations, upbringings, brokenness, all kinds of things, that have emerged with God's design intact in their lives. All right, so this is not an impossible situation to emerge from because of the power of the gospel. And I've seen this. I had a, one of my early parishioners, my very first church, had a man who had been raised up since childhood. His mother had said to him daily, you will never amount to anything. You're worthless. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So he had shame he to him every single day. And so he had problems because of that in his life. He had issues. He couldn't hold jobs. He had all kinds of stuff. And he said to me one day in my office, I was probably like 28 years old, I was a new pastor. He said, I never forgot. He said, you know, I, I may struggle my whole life with these issues, but I'm going to break the chain with my children. And I never forget when he had two beautiful children, and now up, raised, and married now. But he told them regularly in various settings. You, you know, here, you're in the home. He'd say to Lauren, this is his daughter, he'd say, Lauren, you can be anything. Lauren, the sky's the, you know, the sky's the limit for you. You know, he changed, he broke the cycle. And his children are living in the, the wonderful, joyful communion of that reality. So this is very, very possible. So we have to reboot the system, go back to the beginning, and get it right in our lives. So the meantime, the echo of the Trinity keeps going on in our lives. And my biggest fear is that we would think that we encounter the triune God when we come to a place like this to worship. And it's true. We, we do encounter God, the triune God over here, I hope. But I also want you to realize that from the point of view of the Bible, our life with God and what it means to walk with God comes into the, all the rhythms of life. We're about to go into a big liturgy here. But do you not, don't miss the daily liturgy of life. Things like washing dishes. Sounds pretty ordinary, doesn't it? But you do it every day. See, it's a life, life liturgy. Folding clothes, mowing grass, you know, on and on and on. So many things that we do are the daily rhythms of life. This is what it means to enter into that wonderful communion where the daily tasks become acts of love for your spouse, your partner, as you end that. So what happens is there's a thousand ways where you can find daily to say to your spouse, this is my body given for you. And that, of course, becomes the declaration Jesus makes at the Eucharist, which we'll hear today, where Jesus gives his life to us. The mistake we would make is thinking that this is simply a reference to Calvary. It is not. It is much more than that. It is not simply that at one point Jesus gave his life for us like you do at one point on the day that you get married and you exchange these amazing vows. Jesus didn't work up to Calvary. It was the, it's the way he is. This is the way the triune God is in the world. The whole of God's relationship with us is God's self-donation to us in a thousand ways. And the cross is just the greatest example of it, God giving himself to us. And we are now called to give ourselves to one another because that is the very mystery of what it means to be in divine communion or be in communion with the divine triune God. So what have we learned today? We've learned, first of all, we have to explore our original nakedness and the fact that God has designed us that we would live without shame 
our fear. And we must, as Christians, set a trajectory where we will not engage, we will not enter into a cycle of shame and fear in our lives because our whole redemption is tied to that. Secondly, we've explored the spousal meaning of the body where marriage and childbirth actually brings us in as reflections and echoes of the Trinity itself. And we get to participate in the life of God himself, and that means a life of self-donation. Thanks be to God. Amen.